Well, good morning. It's good to see your bright and shining faces. They finally woke up by 11 o'clock. That's good. Well, before I start my message this morning, I want to say a couple words about, you saw that we're having a membership class coming up. It'll be starting on Friday, uh, March the 3rd at 7 p.m. And I think church membership has been a greater mystery than it should be in many places and many people. Uh, sometimes I think you hear the word membership and you think Costco or Netflix or some country club. No, we're not here about you pay dues for member benefits. That's not what church membership is. And, and if you're really a little bit mystified about what church membership is, then this class is for you. Because I think some people don't become members because they don't know what it means. But I think what we'd love to share with you is what we believe the Bible teaches about Christ and salvation. And also, that we can help you understand what belonging to a body of believers is all about and how it's both protective of you and us, but how it brings uh, the ability of God to work through a people and love one another. So I would just encourage you, um, if you've not yet signed up and you're a little mystified, please do. Well, this morning I have an opportunity and privilege of kicking off a new four-part series entitled, It's a Matter of Trust. And in this series, we're going to be addressing some issues like stewardship, trust, money, giving. And as I begin, I know that many of you have already mastered putting God first in this matter of giving. And you've already experienced the joy and the blessing and the, the, just the thrill of giving to God from what he's given us, whether it's our bodies or whether it's our money. And I want to say thank you for giving so faithfully to Valley Bible Church. It's important. Um, but if you're here this morning and you do not know Jesus Christ as your Savior, you're, you don't know what faith in Christ is still all about and, or you've not done it, then please keep your money. We're not about trying to get your money. We want to give you a gift. We want to let you know what God is offering you through Jesus Christ, our Savior, whose death on a cross has purchased redemption for you, forgiveness of sins, eternal life, and a life with him in heaven forever. That's what we want for you. But if you're here and you're a Christian and you've never heard money or giving or stewardship or priorities taught, then this series will be perfect for you too because it'll help you understand what the Bible says about this matter of priorities and giving. But there's one more group here. And I think that group here is you're a Christian. You've been a Christian for a long time and you've heard many, many messages about giving, about putting God first, about priorities. And you have yet to trust God and obey. Um, you haven't seen for yourself and tasted and seen that the Lord is good. I encourage you this morning. I hope today is the day that God connects with you and shares with you the importance of doing this and that you delay no longer in obeying. So let's jump in. 
I think one of the things that we have to understand is why is money such a big deal? Uh, I don't know if you know that 16 out of 38 passages or uh, parables of Jesus are about money. One in 10 verses in the Gospels about money and possessions. There are 500 verses or so on prayer, a little less than that on faith, but there's over 2,000 verses on money and possessions. Um, One would think that God is trying to make a point. Um, It's a big deal to God, and he knows that it can be huge issues for us. I mean, money is a source of a lot of pain in our lives. Uh, We've seen that money is at the root of many divorces, many home failures, and all you have to do is take a happy family and put an inheritance in the middle of them, and you'll see a world war. What causes that? Why is that true? Well, let's just face it. One of the biggest problems we all have is money. And one of the reasons it's a problem is we all need it. I need money. You need money. In fact, the church needs money. You know, God's world here operates based on money. Now, he didn't condemn money. He just says put money in the proper place as a tool, not as a God. So when we look at this, we have to understand that I'm not against having money because having money is not a sign of worldliness. And not having money, having no money, is not a sign of godliness. Many patriarchs of the faith had much wealth. I don't think Abraham was a poor man. He just had faith. He used his resources for God. Well, what did Jesus say in Luke 12? He said to the man who was building bigger barns, I think that gives us insight of what this is all about. He said, fool, this night your life will be required of you. Who will get all the things you've saved up? And he says, so is the one who lays up treasure for himself and is not rich towards God. See, Jesus wasn't against riches. He was saying, don't also be rich towards God. You can have riches. God doesn't mind giving you money if you're not going to be overwhelmed by it and make it your God. If you keep him God, keep him number one, he doesn't have any problem giving you money. But he knows some of you he can't give money. It will become a God. I, I, I fully believe, and, and, and this is just my admission of a lack of faith, baby. I don't think I will ever win the lottery, even if I find the ticket on the street, because God knows it would destroy me. And he's not going to let anything destroy his children. He will not give you that which will destroy you. So what's, I think one of the things I wanted to put in place before we start is many of you think, well, I'm not rich anyway, so this message doesn't apply to me. Well, let me see if I can readjust your thinking. There's a website that's included in the notes that you have. I want you, not now, during the service, but when you get home, all you need to do is enter your household income, hit the button, and it'll tell you where you rank on the spectrum of the world's richest people. Did you know that if you were here and you're just a little couple trying to get by on two $18 an hour jobs, according to what that would translate in an annual income, you'd be in the top 2% of the world's richest people. I think it applies to all of us in this room. We can't dodge and say, well, I'm not rich. We've all been wonderfully blessed by God. 
And so what we need to do is hear what God says about the place of money, the place of priorities, what should be number one in our life. And so I'm gonna focus today on the book of Haggai. Now, the next 10 minutes will be you finding the book of Haggai. But it's on page 743 of your Bibles. If you have a tablet or a phone, you can probably just type in H-A and you can probably get there. Of course, don't go to Habakkuk, go to Haggai. And we're gonna see what God says, the importance of making him our first priority and what are the consequences if we don't. Because there will be consequences. Let's read Haggai chapter one. In the second year of Darius king, in the sixth month, on the first day of the month, the word of the Lord came by the hand of Haggai to the prophet, the prophet to Zerubbabel, the son of Shealtiel, governor of Judah, and to Joshua, the son of Jehozadak, the high priest. Thus saith the Lord of hosts, these people say the time has not yet come to rebuild the house of the Lord. Then the word of the Lord came by the hand of Haggai the prophet. Is it a time for you yourselves to dwell in your paneled houses while this house lies in ruins? Now therefore, says the Lord of hosts, consider your ways. You have sown much and harvested little. You eat, but never have enough. You drink, but never have your fill. You clothe yourself, but nobody's warm. And he who earns wages does so to put them into a bag with holes. Thus saith the Lord of hosts, consider your ways. Go up to the hills and bring wood and, bring, and build the house that I might take pleasure in it and that I may be glorified, says the Lord. You looked for much, and behold, it came to little. And when you brought it home, I blew it away. Why, declares the Lord of hosts, because of my house that lies in ruins while each of you busies himself with his own house. Therefore the heavens above you have withhold the dew and the earth has withheld its produce and I have called for a drought on the land, on the hills, on the grain, on the new wine, the oil and on what the ground brings forth, on man and beast and all their labors. Then Zerubbabel, the son of Shealtiel and Joshua, the son of Jehozadak, the high priest with all the remnant of the people obeyed the voice of the Lord their God and the words of Haggai the prophet as the Lord their God had sent him. And the people feared the Lord. Then Haggai, the messenger of the Lord, spoke to the people with the Lord's message. I am with you, declares the Lord. And the Lord stirred up the spirit of Zerubbabel, the son of Shealtiel, governor of Judah, and the spirit of Joshua, the son of Jehozadak, the high priest, and the spirit of all the remnant of the people. And they came. And they worked on the house of the Lord of hosts, their God, on the 24th day of the month, in the sixth month, in the second year of Darius, the king. This is the word of the Lord. Father, would you just help us here? Would you speak to each heart that's here? Tear away any pretenses, any lies we tell ourselves. who is really first in our lives? And may we listen to the voice of Haggai, which is your voice, and put you first, your priorities first, your projects first, and see what you will do in our lives. I ask you to do this, Father, that no one may leave here unchallenged and unchanged, 
that we might truly leave as a people committed first to the Lord our God. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, let's start. I want to focus on two things this morning. One is the importance of following God's priorities and owning them for ourselves. And the second thing about obedience, the consequences of not being obedient, and the blessings that God provides if we are. In the verses 1 and 2, it says this. Let's get some background. In the second year of Darius the king, we'll just skip through, the word of the Lord came by the hand of Haggai the prophet to Zerubbabel, to Joshua, and to the people. And this thus saith the Lord of hosts. These people say the time has not yet come to rebuild the house of the Lord. So what's going on here? Israel had been taken captive by Nebuchadnezzar some 70 years earlier, taken to Babylon. And we read in the first chapter of Ezra that God spoke and worked through the heart of the pagan king Cyrus, and he was instructed to let the Israelites go for a specific purpose. Let them go that they may rebuild the house of the Lord. And he did that. And 50, you know, it's, I have to say this. Can God work through an evil president, an evil ruler, an evil king? It is no problem to him. Proverbs says the heart of the king is in the hand of the Lord. He'll turn it whichever way he wants. It doesn't have to be a righteous king or a pagan king. We may not fear government when we fear God. So let's just move on. Cyrus let him go. 50,000 Jews went back to Jerusalem, to Israel. And the next thing we pick up is we know that history tells us Darius became king after Cyrus some 17 years later. So if this is the second year of Darius, that means this is 18 years after they went back. Now I think they started working on the temple when they went back, but they quit some maybe one, two years into the project. So it's now been 16, 17 years and nothing's happened. And now because nothing's happened, because the people have said, it's not time yet. It's not time. The very purpose God had let them out of Babylon, it's just not time for that. And God says, I'm gonna send you a message through Haggai. And I think the point is, is he wanted to point out to them what the cause of their delay. The cause of their delay wasn't, I didn't know what to do. Or I didn't know what's up. I didn't know what God asked. It had to do with priorities. And did you know that your priorities and my priorities affect everything you will do? Everything. It'll affect what you do and do not do. It'll affect your actions. It'll affect your affluence, your prosperity. According to this passage, some bad things were happened to their prosperity when they had their priorities wrong. It also says it'll affect our adversities. You think you've got problems now? Get your priorities wrong. They'll multiply. We need to understand that priorities are everything. Let me give you an example. If I said I wanted to go to college, and I set that as a goal to graduate with a degree in college. I have already told myself several things. One, it's gonna take a lot of my time. I, my social life is gonna go to zero, but I say I've counted the cost, I'm willing to do that. It's gonna cost a lot of money. I might have to work two part-time jobs 
to get through college. I might have a student loan, but I tell myself I'm willing to pay that price. My priorities tell me what I'm willing to pay. And it also might say you won't have any fun, any hobbies, anything else because you need to study, study, study. And you say, well, if I need that degree, that's what I've got to do. Your priorities in life will tell you everything about what you do and what you don't do. And if you're not serving God, if you are serving God, it's reflected in your priorities. Well, I think we have to understand one more thing. Some of us, like Israel, are saying, it's not yet time. You know, I know you want me to serve, but it's, you know, I'm busy right now. It's, uh, you know, it's not time. Uh, or I want to obey that, but, you know, it's hard. Um, Israel did the same thing. They made excuses. They were procrastinating. They weren't doing what God said. So we're going to read what God says we need to do about this problem. How do we address it? What do we do next? And what will God do about it if we do? So let's just jump in. Verses one, uh, 3 to 6 tell us what the problem is and what the consequences are. First thing God tells us, and we're going to learn in this passage, is get your priorities right. Then the word of the Lord came by the hand of Haggai, the prophet. Is it a time for you yourselves to dwell in your paneled houses while this house lies in ruins? The people said, it's not yet. God, I know we came back 18 years ago, but it's still not time. Has anybody ever said it's not time for God? Have you known God wanted you to do something, but you said, maybe later? Yeah, I don't want to have to raise my hand every time. But God sends Haggai with a message and tells him, here's the deal. And he asks him a question, which is the same thing we see Jesus doing in much of his teaching. Much of Jesus' teaching was asking probing questions to get his point across. What's God's probing question here? He says this, is it time for you, Israel, and us today, ask yourself the question, is it time to invest in your houses, your priorities, your things that you care about, and delay in building God's house, what my priorities are, what the church needs to do? Are you doing that? Is it time to say, not yet? I think that question still haunts me because sometimes we have said, not yet, to God. I've said it. What happens when we do that? Well, I think God tells us. What he told the people, he said, look at you guys. He said they're living in paneled houses. Now, I know there's lots of schools of thought, but my belief is they were investing in luxury. They weren't investing in essentials. They weren't trying to keep the rain out. They were trying to get in better homes and gardens of Jerusalem. They were trying to make their house look great investing a lot of money and believe it or not this is taking place during a drought and a famine where are they coming up with the money to panel your houses during a drought and a famine this is pointing directly at their priorities and God's saying well you seem to have no problem building your houses nicely but mine doesn't even have four walls and a roof yet and you're off doing your own thing so the question is, why is it we have time for our priorities, but not God's? 
God asked the question, therefore the Lord of hosts says this, consider your ways. And just briefly, consider your ways doesn't mean um, hang your head and, and shame. It just says think closely and set your heart to know what you're really about. What is the path you're on? Are you really seeking Jesus and his kingdom first? Are you seeking God first? Are you seeking you first? God knows the answer to that question no matter what your mouth says. See, some of us might have to take a microscope to look at your life, and when you say, I'm focusing on God, we're gonna find that one spot where you are. But the point is, God knows. And what does he say? Set your heart on knowing that. It's his kingdom first. Because he's gonna remind them right here in verse six, there are your actions, or lack of them, will determine your affluence and your adversities. And he goes on. You have sown much and harvested little. You see that no amount of hard work you do seems to produce any crop. Can this actually be like harvesting for souls of men if we don't put God first on how we do it? If we're doing it mechanically, we're just trying to put in our time? God's crops are dependent upon putting God first and doing it God's way. But he's saying here, no matter work you do is gonna produce anything. You eat, but you never have enough. Your stomach will never be full. You drink, but you never have your fill. I love this. According to the New American Standard, did I do something here? My voice disappeared. According to the New American Standard Bible, they translate this verse, you drink, but don't have enough. They say, you drink, but there's not enough to become drunk. That's hilarious. Um, God tells them that during this famine, during this time when their priorities are screwed up, you're, not, you're gonna have so many problems and you won't even be able to drink them away because you can't get drunk. That's pretty bad. You clothe yourselves, but no one's warm. Anybody ever been in a place where you didn't have the right clothes and no matter what you put on, you were freezing? Ever gone to the snow unprepared as a kid? You're sitting there in your Levi's and you have no ski pants and you have tennis shoes. You are freezing. What's this? You clothe yourself but nobody's warm. Whatever they put on didn't keep them warm. That's miserable. And it says here, and he who earns wages does so to put them into a bag with holes. <laughs> Ever had a bag like that? Is your wallet like that? You know you just put in 100 bucks yesterday and you open it up, moths. What happened? It's gone. See, he says, as long as your priorities are wrong and you're neglecting my house, you won't be able to do enough to keep stuff in your wallet and get ahead. You won't. It's impossible. And it says you, you work hard, you sow a lot, but you harvest little. You work so hard. You do work so hard. You might even work two jobs. You might even sacrifice your family's time so you can work every hour of overtime you can get. You try to work harder so you can get that promotion to that management job which will never let you see your family again. You, you study all night long on your portfolio to see if you can increase your wealth and nothing works. The bills are always more than the money. Why is this? Nothing seems to work. There's too much month at the end of your money. 
no matter how much you bring home. I bet you if you looked right now and what you made 10 years ago and what you make now, you're shocked at the difference. When I worked at PG&E, I have to say, I started for $975 a month. I'm not even going to tell you what I ended up, but let me tell you, it was over 10 times that. Why? Did I have the same problem on both ends? I would have if I hadn't had the priorities right. So, but as soon as you get that money in your wallet, what happens? You're driving to work and the car breaks down. 1,500 bucks. There went that little nest egg you thought you brought home. And then what happens? Then your wife calls. The furnace went out. The storm just came through. Did anybody have any roof leaks during this last storm? What happened there? I had a good roof. Why does water supposed to go off the roof, not through the roof? These holes that get in your bag, you don't even have to create. God says he's going to give you the bag with holes. Why? The same thing he told Israel. Because you're procrastinating. You're giving me excuses. You're not putting me first. You're not building my house. I'm telling you it's going to have a consequence. And you're not going to get ahead no matter how hard you work. This is where I was many years ago. I was right here with the bag with holes in it. You might think, how can a man of God have a bag of holes in it? I'll tell you, you can be a Christian and not put him first in everything. He doesn't want it that way. He shouldn't do it that way. There's a lots of things that God says are blessings if we do it right, and there's consequences of doing it wrong, but some of us are hard-headed. We don't learn. Well, I've also heard the notion, well, I don't have much right now, but when I have a lot, then I'll give to the church. I'll give to God. Uh, if this is you, I just tell you right now, forget it. That won't happen. If you're not putting God first, your bag will have a hole in it until the end of time. You won't get ahead. See, Jesus promised in Matthew 6 that if you put his kingdom first, you would have all these things added to you. What does that mean? Is that a promise? Yes, it is. Do we trust the promise? Many of us don't. What? You think giving to God first, I'm going to have less. Uh, I, I, may not, I may not have enough if I give to God first. Jesus promised, if you put my kingdom first, you put me first, you will never worry about four things again. You won't worry about what you should eat. You'll have everything you need. Now, it doesn't say you'll have filet mignon lobster. It says you'll have everything you need. So you don't have to worry about what you, what you drink, what you wear, and the most important one, you don't have to worry about tomorrow. Do you know all those naggy, pesky what-ifs? Uh, what if the stock market drops? What if my 401k goes down? What if I don't have the right job? What if the bills go up? What if, what if, what if? Jesus says we don't have to worry about tomorrow. Isn't that a wonderful truth? You do not have to worry about whatever tomorrow will bring if you put him first and his kingdom. It's his promise. Now the question is, do you believe him? Are you living like you believe him? It's a matter of trust, isn't it? Well, 
for me, I, I've seen people, I want to give, but I look at my bank account and I don't know how. See, God tells us in Israel, if you put me first, you will have everything you need. Number one, get your priorities right. Number one. Number two, verse seven. What if your priorities are right? What should you do? Well, he goes on and says, pour yourself. Get busy. Do what I've asked you to do. Engage in my project and my priorities and what I've asked you to do. Verse seven. Thus saith the Lord of hosts, consider your ways. Again, check what's number one. Go up to the hills, bring wood, build the house that I might take pleasure in it and I may be glorified, says the Lord. So was what God asked them really hard? I mean, difficult to understand? Go to the hills, chop a few trees down. You don't even have to grow the trees, I will. Bring them back, build a house. This doesn't sound like rocket science. I think many times God's word gives us instructions, you should forgive one another. And it feels like rocket science. You gotta trust. Why is it important? If God asks us to do it, it's important. And God is asking these people to do three things. Go to the hills, chop some wood down, bring it back, and build a house. But they were investing in their own priorities and their own houses. And he says, let me remind you again, See, since you've been procrastinating and you've been, I'm gonna give you the consequences again. Let me rehearse a few more. You didn't think the bag with holes in it was enough? I'll give you a few more. It's gonna, your, your priorities are gonna affect your adversities now. From the beginning of their return, see, God wanted them to do it and they've said no. So verse nine tells us, you looked for much and behold, it came little. <laughs> do you know anybody in America that wants to do little and get a lot? I mean, everybody's trying to find the quick, easy way to get rich, right? Do little, get a lot, sit in your home and earn money while you're doing nothing, all these types of things. He's saying you can work much and have little. This isn't the other way around. Do you know any Christians in your, in your world that just can't get out of financial trouble? They just can't get ahead? Now, let me hear, hear me well. All financial trials are not sin. You know, Financial crises can hit the righteous and the unrighteous. But God is telling them, I want you to look at least one cause and rule it out. Make sure. It's just like the, when he said, men, if your prayers are being hindered, how are you treating your wife? Because if you're treating your wife wrong, I will not hear your prayers. So does God just always say no because he says no, no, but he says sometimes there's causes of not hearing our prayer. In the same way, he's saying sometimes there's causes when people, and even Christians, have financial difficulties. They don't put God first. Now, you gotta understand, when these people were working on their houses, he's not saying working on your houses is a sin. What he's saying is working on your houses at the exclusion of not working on mine, now that's a problem. Focusing on what you want without even caring about God wants is a problem. And what is he going to do? According to this, he says, why am I, what am I going to do? He says, you might think that you're just a poor financial manager. 
You might think you're just having a string of hard luck. When you see your drought in your area, you just think it's bad luck. Or you might think the person in your house that you're blaming for buying too many things on Amazon, that's the problem. No. It says here, God says, it's none of those things. Because when you brought it home, I blew it away. Who? God, that doesn't sound nice. If you were lucky enough to come home with that bag with holes in it and you still had two coins left in it, God says, (laughs) not for long, He says, whatever you brought home, I blew away. Do you think God's serious? I think he's serious. Neglecting my house, my priorities, here's what I'll do. I'm gonna blow whatever little you have away. It's gone. Whatever you thought you had, it'll be gone. See, we must remember that Deuteronomy 8 18 says, you shall remember the Lord your God for it is he who gives you the power to get wealth. Who? God. Nobody gets rich without God. No one. Not even Bill Gates. God, for some reason, God has permissively let Bill Gates get a lot of money. But he doesn't have it without God's approval. And God can take it away in a heartbeat if he chooses. Even billions. He's not struggling by the amount. But you cannot prosper, according to this verse, unless God prospers you. You will never get ahead, never get ahead with bad priorities. God will not prosper you. He promises he will not prosper you. If you do not keep him first, keep his priorities as number one, you won't get, first. You won't get anywhere. He will not prosper you. See, it doesn't matter how financially savvy you are. If your priorities aren't right, God is not first, you will not prosper. Even having lots of money, God can take away. Did you know that? Some people get big inheritances or win lots of money. I read a story about a man named Bud Post from Pennsylvania. Bud Post had won $16.2 million in the Pennsylvania lottery. Within 12 months, he was $1 million in debt. He says, I wished it never happened. It was a nightmare. A former girlfriend successfully sued him for a third of his winnings. The brother who thought loved him was arrested for allegedly hiring a hitman to kill him so he could get the money. He sank the rest of the money in a family business, which he lost, and he sank deeper in debt, spent time in jail for firing a gun over the head of a bill collector. His final analysis, I was much happier when I was broke. What did he hear? It's gone. I don't care if it's 16 million or 16 billion. God can take it away. And it could be $16 in your account. I know our pastor, senior pastor Phil Howard, shared a story years ago that stuck with me. There was a man at Prestonwood Baptist Church in Dallas that was attending the church one Sunday because his daughter had become saved at a vacation Bible school. While he was sitting in the service, he committed his life to Christ. And during that same service, their pastor, Dr. Billy Weber, presented a need for a million dollars for them to reach out into the Dallas area through television. 
at the end of the service, this man came up who had just put faith in Christ. He said, hey, hey, I think I heard you say you needed some money for a project. What was that? And how much did you need? Was that television for the Dallas area? We need a million dollars. He pulled out his checkbook and wrote a check, like you and I could do, for a million dollars and handed it to the church. Makes sense, right? Just saved, million dollars. But it wasn't long after the oil uh, economy in Texas failed. The man lost everything, and soon he was borrowing his mother's car just to get back and forth to work wherever he now worked. And he went to see the pastor to get some counsel, and the pastor was trying to console him, and the pastor was almost feeling bad that he had given the money to the church because now this man had nothing, and they had the million dollars. And the man says, no, 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 pastor. No. I only lost what I kept. I did not lose what I gave. You hear me? The only thing we can protect in this life is what we invest in eternity. Whether it's our labor, whether it's our money. I don't know if anybody had a plaque like this when I was growing up, but it said, only one life will soon be passed. Only what's done for Christ will last. You're not gonna, you don't have anything to show when you leave this world if you have Taj Mahal as your house and not Christ. If you're not rich towards God, you have nothing. Nothing. And the time to give it, according to these stories, is not later, it's when you have it. When you have your physical health, when you have a little bit of money, give it, because you don't know that disaster could strike anyone, including you. You could slip and fall going downstairs, break a bone, and you'll never be the same. You can't serve again. Or the money you had is gone. The time to give it is now. Otherwise, you might hear as your money, your health, your family, your relationships is blown away because your priorities are wrong and you're not focusing on the kingdom of God first. It's sobering, isn't it? It's sobering. It's scary to a certain extent. You mean God would actually use these kind of tactics to get our attention to help us do the right thing? Yes, he would. He'd take everything away from you if it'll get you to put him first. Well, it says more. I want you to get the message. Now I gotta go faster. Therefore, the heavens above you have withheld the dew, and the earth has withheld its produce. I've called for a drought on the land, the hills, the grain, the wine, the oil, on the ground brings forth on man and beast and all the labors of their hands. You see, God is not above calling a global problem for individual failings. See, when man sinned, when Adam sinned, all of creation paid the price, all of it. Man, soil, animals, weather, nothing escaped God's curse on mankind that he fell. And God, when Israel was rebelling, called a drought and a famine on the whole land. So do you think that drought or famine only occurred at the houses of those who were not putting God's first? All the ones who put God first, there was rain on their house. But the next-door neighbor had no rain, and the next guy had rain, and then the next guy, no. The whole land was under a famine. This is scary to me, 
because I'm going to try to help you, God says. Put me first, and you've got to understand that what you do affects others. You're not living in isolation anymore. Christian, you are living in a community, in the body of Christ. You are a member of the body of Christ. If one part of the body suffers, the whole body suffers. And what he's saying here, do you you remember any stories in the Bible where this is true? What about Achan? One man stole a wedge of gold. What happened? The armies of Israel were defeated. Many were killed. What happened when King David decided to number the people? One man sinned. 70,000 people died. Do you know that what we do in this building to not put God first impacts everybody in this building? You, you, it's scary to me that if what I do wrong can impact you, I need to be more careful not only for myself, but for you. And you need to be the same for me. I just pray that right now you would have your priorities rearranging right now in your head to put God first and you will listen and respond, if not for your own good, for the good of the Christian community in which you live. God wants you to respond. And that's the next point. Point three, if, he, if we respond, he will act. It's a great, great story. With all of God's messages, he wants us not to feel guilty and hang our heads. He wants us to change. He wants us to either repent or do what's not being done. And this is the same here. And it's really cool because through the powerful message of Haggai, he got a wonderful, a marvelous response from the people. Let's see what they did. In verse 12, it says, Zerubbabel, Joshua, with all the remnant of the people, obeyed the voice of the Lord their God. How clear. It didn't say they negotiated. They didn't ask for more time. You know, we had a person at this church that we were unfortunately having to discipline because of sin in their life. And when we confronted them and said, this is what needs to change, otherwise we're gonna act. And I couldn't believe my ears, but the question came back, how much time do I have? What? None. Repent or not. I mean, we're at this point. We've already, we've already come out like three months talking with you, trying to get you to change. This is the point in time you either repent or we have to discipline you. What are you doing? Well, how much time do I have? This is not the response of Israel. Israel didn't say, give me 30 days, God, and I'll think about it. No, they obeyed. And the next thing it says they did is they feared God. They feared the Lord. And I think this is not just being afraid of God. This is to honor him and reverence him as king eternal, majestic in power and authority and holiness and purity. If he stood in front of us, we would all be on our faces. Right? This is the God. We, we don't just bop in and say, hi, daddy, and not recognize that we must revere this holy God. He is our father, but he's still the king. You hear me? We need to fear God. And according to Ecclesiastes 12, 13, it says that those who fear the Lord will obey him. This is why it's important. Israel 
obeyed God and they feared him and it makes total sense. Those who fear God will obey him. Do you fear him? Do you obey him? Well, what did God do? First thing he said is verse 13. The Haggai, the messenger of the Lord, spoke to the people and says, I am with you, declares the Lord. What a powerful, amazing, I, the Lord of hosts, will be with you. Who else would you want with you? You want big bruiser or you want God? I I, I was thinking about this. When Joshua took over after Moses, four times in the first chapter of Joshua, God had to tell Joshua, be courageous, be strong. Four times in the same chapter. And it says, I'll give you the reason why. Because I am with you. I am with you. I will never leave you. Do not be dismayed, for the Lord your God is with you wherever you go. Wouldn't you like to have that promise? See, God is with us. Jesus promised in Matthew 28 that I will be with you until the end of the age. Jesus, even sinning believers, Jesus does not leave. He doesn't abandon. But this is not what this is talking about. This is talking about standing side by side to do your battles, to protect you. He's not going to protect. If you're sinning against him, he's not necessarily aligned with that sin, is he? No. He's not trying to align himself with your sin and promote your sin and give you an easy time while you're sinning. You don't have the same promise that he gave Israel when he says, I will be with you. Now that you obeyed me, I am with you. That means no enemy can defeat you as long as you obey me. It's interesting that he says this because the same thing that David said in Psalm 23. We often go through Psalm 23, but we don't pay much attention. David said in the fourth verse, even though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will fear no evil. Why, David? Because you are with me. Do you understand how powerful a promise that is for us believers today? Do I, do, do I, would I like the, the bo- my bodyguard next to me or do I want God next to me? I can go anywhere with God. I can go any dark street. I can do any witnessing assignment. I need not fear. Why? My God is with me. It's an awesome promise. And when we fear God, and God only says that promise, by the way, you notice when he said it, is when the people repented, the people said, I will obey, then he says, good. Now I'm with you. God won't say that to you or me if we don't repent, if we don't get our priorities right. This isn't, that promise isn't a cash for all promise. This comes to those who want to do things God's way. The other thing that God did is he said that he stirred up the spirits of Zerubbabel, of Judah, and all the remnant of the people, and they came to work on the house their God. Don't get lost in the big names in verse 14. We need to pay attention to what God said he was going to do because it's beautiful. Sometimes when we do God's will, it's a little bit of a struggle, isn't it? Uh, I need to forgive him. I don't want to, but mm, boy. Okay, I forgive you. Sometimes doing what God asks us to do doesn't just roll off our lips. 
What he says here is when the people obeyed, God stirred their inner spirit so they wanted to do it. They had enthusiasm to do it. They had joy in the doing of it. When God does this, he does something on the inside of us that makes us want to do what he's been asking us to do all along. The first step is, yes, Lord, I will do your will. When you say that, God steps in and says, good, I'm going to energize your spirit. Just like I did the children of Israel in Exodus chapter 35, Moses asked the people to give to the building of the tabernacle. God stirred their spirits to give, and they were so enthusiastic about it and brought so many gifts that the builders and the craftsmen says, Moses, Moses, tell them, we, we got enough. We got enough. And Moses had to give an order to the people of Israel, said, stop. I know it's hilarious for you to give. You're having lots of fun, but you gotta stop. We have all we need. No, you haven't heard that from this pulpit yet. We don't have all we need. I'm not telling you to stop giving and bringing your offerings. But I'm telling you, if you put God's will first in your life, he'll give you joy in the giving and the serving and the doing that you won't want to stop. You'll have to be told to stop. And God's not likely to do that here. Well, he could. If somebody wants to give us, you know, 50 million and we don't need a lot of offer, I don't know what we would do. But the point is, putting God first, saying yes to his will, gets energy and enthusiasm and strength and joy that wells up in our hearts because he does it. It's a work of God, not a work of willpower. Does anybody want to serve God without just using willpower to get here every Wednesday night? This is the way. This is the way. Well, I just want to end here. All of us have been given a mission as Christians. We're all on mission. And God says, if you say yes to my priorities, obey me. Now, the question is, are, are you really obeying him? See, we don't have the same command of go to the hills, get wood, build a house. We have the word of God that gives us lots of commands, right? The question I would ask you is, are you obeying what you know? See, I'm not going to say you have to obey everything in Scripture that you don't even know yet. Our problem is we don't even obey what we do know. That's mine. I, I know a lot more Bible than I do consistently. The question is, do we obey him? Because if we do and we put him first, God promises that he'll be with us, he'll stand with us to protect us, to guard us, and align with us, and provide with us, and comfort us, and he will also energize our spirit so much, we can't stop serving. Well, let me just share, and I'm gonna close two things. The first is a quick personal story. Over 35 years ago, I heard a message on this very chapter, and I have to tell you, it rocked my world, because I'd never heard the concept that my bag had holes in it, and it sure did. Every time I paid my bills at the end of the month, I thought somebody had come in and stolen my money. So what I did that night, I remember very clearly sitting at my desk and praying and asking God for the faith to apply what I just heard because it didn't make any sense to me. I wanted to give to God first, but I had seen my checkbook every month. And at the end of every month, there was like 12 bucks left, six bucks left. I, if I could, I'd tip God. But some months, God didn't even get a tip. 
And then, now you're telling me, uh, subtract this larger number at the top, and it'll work better for you. I said, I'm an engineer. I know math. I can't subtract the same things I've been subtracting every month and put a bigger number on top and have it be a happy ending for me. I didn't. I, I said, there wasn't faith. So I said, well, you know, God, you said, you promised, you promised, I'll, I'll try it. The next month, I'm telling you, this is serious. Next month, I paid God first. I wrote the check to God first, said, God, you're worth being first. I don't know what's gonna happen for the rest of this, but you're first. I went to the rest of the checkbook, I paid the last bill, and I had like several hundred dollars left over. My first guess was not faith, wonderful God. My first says, what bill did I forget? (laughs) I scoured my checkbook several times to make sure that I hadn't forgotten the bill because I was sure I had to. Then I realized I hadn't. And then I realized what God was telling me and told through uh, Haggai, God's math is not our math. Since, since when, really, since when does five loaves and two fish feed 10,000 people? If you were the meal planner, is that what you'd bring? Or, or does, like we read in Psalms, it says that one puts 1,000 to flight and two put 10,000 to flight. What army school would teach that? None. This is God's math. And God laughs. I think God laughed at me because I think he enjoys being unpredictable, doing things that aren't possible, doing things that don't make any sense when you trust him. Right now, you couldn't get me to stop putting him first because it's too much fun. It's hilarious. Now, you have to understand, after I did that, I went through a lot of different changes in my life. I changed jobs. I went through a divorce. Um, I was single for a while. Um, I retired. I have a new family. I have a larger family. Um, Lots of different changes. But I've applied the same principle through for over 35 years, and I've never had it happen that the bottom line wasn't bigger than I ever thought it could be. Why is that? God is faithful. God is faithful. And he honors his word. You put him first, he will never let you down. The second thing, I was, I'm going to ask you three quick questions. What are your priorities? Are you really, really, really putting God first? Are you just thinking you're putting him first, but you still have your hobbies, your vacations, your, but when it comes for God's work, yeah, yeah, I got this tip for you. Are you really putting God first? Two, are you delaying You know what you want to do. You have good intentions to do, but you're just delaying. You say, it's not yet time. When I, you know, when I retire, I'll have more time to serve. Really? You might be laid up and you can't serve anywhere. Well, when I have a little more money, I'll give. Really? You won't have any money. The point is, are you deferring and delaying and procrastinating? I would pray. Pray, pray. Please don't delay anymore. Third, are you really obeying and fearing God? Because if you're not, listen for the sound of wind, the sound of coins hitting the ground out of a bag with holes in it, 
in a drought on your life, on your family, on your relationships, because God will get your attention. He will not be mocked. He will be first. He settles for no second place. He's not a second place God. But if you do, he promises, I stand with you. I'll give you comfort and courage and protection and I will stir up your spirit so much you would never be able to stop serving. When Moses gives the command, you're gonna say, no, I was still gonna give. That's what he'll do. I wanna close. If you don't know Jesus, again, I don't want your money. This church doesn't want your money. We want you to know Jesus Christ. We want you to have the salvation that we have, that God gave his son as a free gift to those who trust in his death and resurrection, that he will give you eternal life if you will repent and submit to him and make him Lord and Savior of your life. You can leave here with a treasure much greater than any world's treasure. Take the world, but give me Jesus. And if you're a child of God and you're still saying it's not yet time, please repent. Put God first. Get yourself out of the wind. Get your bag sewn up. Put your life and your body on his priorities and he will stir you up like you've never been stirred up before and you will have so much joy having maybe even less in this world's goods but more joy. And those that are still giving, they've mastered it, they're still doing it. May your tribe increase. Please do it. Please keep being a representative of what God will do in a life that's fully committed to him. You know, before I pray, I want to say this. Is there anybody here today who says, you know what? He might have been first. I think he was first. Maybe he was first. Anybody here want to put God first today? I want you to stand. I want you to stand. Anybody want to put God first? I want to trust you. I don't want to trust my money. I don't want to trust my family. I want to trust you. And if you say it's what you want, you've got it. I'm so thankful. Some of you might be standing for the first time saying, I want to put Jesus and his kingdom first. God will not fail to see your heart's commitment and reward you. Father, I'm just astounded. I'm astounded by what you can do in a hard heart and a life like mine, that you can get me to repent, that you can get me to give my money to something other than my own pleasure, my own wants. But Jesus, thank you so much for rescuing all of us from sin and death in the grave and giving us life eternal, but thank you for giving us a mission and giving us your presence and giving us a stirring of our spirit. If we will just obey you and put you first, all of this is ours. Father, would you reward each person who's standing. May you stir their hearts. May you give them a fresh sense of accomplishment, of joy, of purpose, of energy that you, we would have not enough places for people to serve because people are making themselves available. We're done saying not yet. It's not yet time. It is time. The days are short. 
Would you let us pour our lives, what's left of them, into the cross work and kingdom of Christ that you might have even a greater reward for your suffering through the work of Valley Bible Church and each of these precious saints who want to serve you. In Jesus' name, amen. Thank you.